Sorry, I'm trying to escape the sun coming in through the beautiful skylight. I was, listening, I was listening to a podcast the other week when the topic meandered into something that piqued my interest. The two people began speaking of a relatively new theory of explaining different contexts of parenting. This was not a parenting podcast, but yet. They called it the can't-won't problem. Here's what it is in a nutshell. If Patrick were to ask me for a pony, I can pretty well tell him that I can't get him a pony. We don't have the means. But there are some children who grow up in some families that do. So when those kids ask their parents for a pony, it's not true of the parent to say to them, I can't. Instead, they have to say, I won't. Saying I won't to your kid is much harder. When Patrick asked me to read the 10th book of the afternoon, or to read the same book for the fourth or fifth time, I'm kind of ready to move on to something else, or for him to go play by himself. But it's not true to say I can't. I have the ability to read a 10th book, and I've certainly shown an ability to read that book four times. It's not true to say I can't. I have to either do it or say I won't. Many times in your life, you have had to say I won't to your kid or to your friends or to your spouse. Sometimes we have to, but it's hard. It's hard to say I won't. Because when you say I won't, usually you have to have a reason why you won't. I have learned that the first question after an I won't is why? Usually the seventh question in that conversation is why. Patrick does this thing now where if, once you get to the end of his series of whys, he goes, oh, that's the greatest sound in the world <laughs> when you have fully satisfied that child. Sorry, I digress. But when you say you won't, you have to have a reason why you won't. You have to have a much bigger conversation. You have to have a discussion. It'd be much easier and much nicer to just say, I can't. Sometimes we have a can't-won't problem with God. As Christians, we make pretty big and amazing claims about who God is and what God can do. God created the heavens and the earth. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-present. God is all-loving. But those claims can create a can't-won't problem. Because when we have problems in our lives... When we have struggles, when we have tragedies, we cry out to God asking, why don't you fix it? And if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present and all-loving, the answer isn't, I can't. Sometimes it feels like, I won't. Which brings about a larger conversation. God, why won't you make it so that the wicked are punished and that good people prosper? God, why won't you make the timing work in my life for me? God, why won't you keep our kids safe, keep our family safe, keep us safe? God, why won't you heal me of this disease, heal my spouse, heal my child? God, why won't you spare us of these hurts, of these pains? God, why won't you make everything 
right. Lent is all about that can't, won't problem. And our scripture text this morning is all about that can't, won't problem. But before we get to Lent, we're going to move to scripture. But first, I want to give some context. We are reading this morning in Matthew's gospel. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy that begins with Abraham and presents Jesus as the way that God will be faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham. Then we have a birth story from Joseph's perspective and the visit of the wise men. The Holy Family escapes Herod's wrath by fleeing to Egypt. Then they return to Nazareth after Herod dies. And then we hear about Jesus' baptism by John. And at this point, Matthew has made a ton of oblique references to Jesus being the Messiah. He has connected Jesus with Abraham. In the birth story from Joseph's perspective, Matthew has connected, has connected to God's promise to restore David's kingly line. The wise men have called Jesus king of the Jews. Jesus is connected to Joseph and Israel by going down to Egypt. Joseph of the Technicolor Dreamcoat variety. And then Jesus is made known to be God's son in a story that involves a river. And you can't move from a story about Egypt to one about a river without God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt through the water coming to mind. These are all the ideas and images that Matthew has put on the table as we approach our scripture text this morning. And what follows the scripture text we'll be looking at this morning is what immediately happens after the baptism of Jesus when the Holy Spirit like a dove came to rest on Jesus and God said from the heavens this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased I'm gonna read the whole thing and then we'll break it down into parts as is our custom I'm reading from Matthew chapter 4 it's printed in your lifeline displayed on the screen behind me to the side of me uh, and if you would like a Bible we give them away for free over at our welcome table you can pick one up while you're registering to go to the movie the shack I brought it back then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted, and begins by fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. 
Again, the imagery is powerful. We have just had a story about God's presence through water, and now we have someone in the wilderness and the number 40. Jesus is recreating the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The history of Israel is being reconstituted in Jesus. I will stop geeking out on all of this Old Testament, New Testament connections soon, I promise. After 40 days of fasting, the Bible tells us that Jesus is very hungry. Which, yeah. But also a necessary detail concerning God's son. He got hungry. So the tempter comes to Jesus and asks a series of questions, each of them functioning on a personal level for Jesus and on a macro level for what it means for the Son of God to have come into the world. And each of them deal with a can't-won't problem. The first temptation offered is to turn stones into bread. On a personal level for Jesus, we can understand this temptation. If you haven't eaten for 40 days, having some bread sounds amazing. Frankly, if you haven't eaten for four hours, having some bread sounds amazing. And we have this story in John's Gospel where Jesus turns water into wine and the Bible goes out of its way to tell us how good the wine was. So you know Jesus wasn't going to turn the stones into like Wonder Bread. It was going to be like a nice squishy sourdough. I'm digressing about the bread. For years, I thought this temptation was about Jesus being really hungry. And it is. But then I went to the Holy Land, and I drove around on my way to Nazareth and around the Jordan. And you know what I saw? Rocks all over the place. I'd always pictured Satan showing Jesus three or four rocks and saying, would you like a snack? When I was driving around the Holy Land, I could easily see Satan pointing all around and telling Jesus to turn millions of stones into enough bread to feed the world. To feed the poor peasants that grew up with Jesus in his hometown. To feed the poor all across the countryside that Jesus would have seen on his travels to and from Egypt. To solve the problem of world hunger once and for all. How often do we face the temptation of miracle? How often do we seek the miraculous in order to alleviate human suffering? How often are we tempted to search for the silver bullet solutions to our problems? Jesus, hunger and resource disparity are big problems. Why don't you just solve it here and now? Jesus' answer is not, I can't, because he can. His answer is, I won't. Because he says, we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This answer seems to suggest two things. There might be more going on in the Son of God's mission in the world than simply eliminating our problems, and simple solutions don't address the real problem. We're going to leave that aside for a moment as we move on to the second temptation. The tempter takes Jesus to the top of the temple and tells him to jump. He says that Jesus will have nothing to worry about because angels will come to his rescue. And imagine what the crowds will think. Imagine how many people will follow Jesus. The temptation to Jesus is to gain the support of the crowd in one simple action. 
instead of wandering all over the wilderness from town to town, Jesus can get all the supports he needs right then and there. The devil tempts Jesus with the temptation to spectacle, the temptation to gain a following through devious means. On a macro level, we experience this temptation. We want that spectacle. We want Jesus to jump and be saved because we want to follow that. We want it to be easy to follow. We want it to be confirmed. We want to see what we are called to believe. If Jesus jumps from the top of the temple and is saved by angels, it's a whole lot easier to believe in him, to follow him. We want to be a part of that spectacle. We want to believe in the spectacle. Jesus doesn't say that he can't. Jesus' answer isn't that he doesn't believe he will be saved by angels or feeling like he will die. Instead, Jesus says that he won't. That we are called not to put our God to the test. Because we are not called to have certainty, we are called to have faith. People will follow Jesus. People will trust in Jesus. People will believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And they'll do it on the basis of truly encountering Jesus. By having their life transformed by Jesus. The same is true for us. We will never get the spectacle we crave. We can follow based on encountering who Jesus is. I'd also like to point out that um, in telling Jesus to jump, the devil used scripture. Let that all temper our own faith in our interpretations. Our last temptation is perhaps the most insidious. The tempter shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and offers them to Jesus if Jesus will but bow down and worship the tempter. Jesus is tempted to become a God unto himself, to be as powerful as the one Jesus called Father. Jesus could be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Jesus faces the temptation to political power. The most insidious of all. This is a temptation we all face. We all seek to find salvation in the political order. When we have the right leader, when we have the right ruler, then all will be well. And if we have the right ruler, then everyone around the world should listen to that ruler. One king to rule them all. We are tempted to want one leader. One ruler who can make us all to live in peace. Jesus says he won't. It's not that he can't. It's not that he isn't tempted by this. The tempter wouldn't save the easiest temptation for last. But nonetheless, Jesus says he won't bow down to the devil. Won't give in to the temptation of political power. He won't because we are called to worship God and to serve only God. Jesus connects worship and service. We won't become subjects of Jesus through political coercion. We will worship God and Jesus, serving through a conversion of our hearts and minds and will. We will serve God and worship God in freedom. We will love the God we serve. Now, I said that these are three temptations, but they are related such that they're really three variations on the same temptation. And it's a temptation we all feel. 
It's a temptation to have Jesus accomplish his mission both in the world and in us just like that. I knew I could snap better. It's a temptation to have redemption come easily without pain or work. When Jesus says no to these temptations, he is not saying that he doesn't want to eat or he doesn't want the poor to eat. He is not saying that he doesn't want people to follow him. He doesn't say that he doesn't want to be the king of kings. Instead, he's saying there's a right way and a wrong way. And he won't take the wrong way. What the can't won't problems of the temptations teach us is that Jesus refuses to take the easy way out, refuses to take easy answers, refuses to say the ends justify the means. Instead, Jesus sets the course to do things the hard way and the right way. Jesus sets his course to the cross. We started off this morning talking about the can't won't problem with God. God, why won't you make everything right? Why won't you just fix our world? Why won't you just fix our lives? That is what these temptations of Jesus are all about. There's a part of us that wants Jesus to say yes to the temptations, to cure our physical problems by mass miracle, to be a spectacle so that it's obvious to everyone whom we should follow, and to order our lives and our world to be our king whether or not we give the okay. Just do it, God. Just fix it. When things aren't fixed, we assume it's because God isn't working to fix it. What the temptation of Jesus teaches us is that God is working. God is working to fix our world. God is working to fix our lives. However, there's a right way to fix it and a wrong way to fix it, and God refuses to do it the wrong way. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a phrase for what these temptations are about and what we sometimes want from God. He called it cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is grace without a price, without costs. Cheap grace means justification of sin, but not of the sinner. Because grace alone does everything. Everything can stay in its old ways. End quote. You see, when we want everything to be fixed, typically we don't have, we want, typically we don't want to have to work to change ourselves. In choosing the right way and in choosing God's way, Jesus is choosing the cross. And Jesus chooses God's way even though he knows it ends in the cross. God's won't to the easy way involves God's saying yes to the cross. This is what Lent is about. This is why we need Lent. Why can't God just fix everything? And why can't God, why won't God do that without the cross? There's no answer to that. God could, he just won't. And it's in order to teach us what grace really is, what redemption really is, and what it is to love in freedom. Our redemption only comes about because of the cross. Our redemption only comes about through cost. Bonhoeffer has an alternative to cheap grace, and the alternative to cheap grace is costly grace. Of costly grace, he says, quote, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which has to be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. It is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. 
Lent is about working on our spiritual lives. Lent is about us working on our souls. Lent is about realizing that our redemption, our sanctification, us being closer followers of Jesus only comes about through work, through cost, through real discipleship. Our sermon series as we prepare for Easter is called Spring Cleaning. Here's the thing about cleaning. You can only clean something up if you first think it's a mess. Have you and your spouse, or have you and one of your kids, or have you and someone you work with ever disagreed on whether something's a mess or a pile? Many, many times I have asked my wife, tell me what's messy and I'll clean it up. And she'll respond, look around. And I do. I'm just seeing piles. She's seeing messes. The first step in cleaning is naming that something is a mess. Today, I want us to look at our lives. Where is your mess? Because we all have them. And this is not meant to speak in judgment over anyone or over anything. This is not meant to make us feel guilty. Lent, our spiritual spring cleaning, is about naming the places in our lives where we need to work and letting God lead us in healing those places. It's about understanding who we are and where we are before God and going a bit further. And it starts with us naming what we need to work on. And then we need to start working. We need to start doing. We need to, by God's grace, begin to clean up the troubled places of our soul. That's why people give things up during Lent. This is why people add spiritual practices to their lives during Lent. So each week of this sermon series, I'm going to try and give us something to do. There will be homework. I'm going to give us a practical thing to do as a response to God's word. Sometimes it will be to do something right here in worship. Sometimes it will be to do something at home or for a longer period of time. Today, I want you to think about one thing you can do this month to further your walk with God. I'll give you an example by way of my Lenten practices. Too often, I watch too much TV. Y'all never would have guessed that by how I start my sermons. And I spend too little time in my spiritual disciplines. So this Lent, I'm instituting a no Bible, no TV rule for myself. I can't watch TV until I've done my daily Bible reading. Now that's an easy practice. It's easy to follow and easy to stay accountable to and easy to know when I didn't do it. My other practice is going to be a bit less defined. I want to be a kinder person. I don't know what that means or what that looks like, but for this season, I want to kind of meditate and think on what it means to bring kindness to our world. Because I think... We all might, well, I could stand to be a bit kinder. I won't generalize anything. Now I want to give you a few minutes to think about yours. I have some, and, and then I'm going to ask you to do something after you've thought. I have some note cards. Um, I want you to, once you've thought about what you want to do during Lent, once you want to pick up, what you want to avoid doing, what is one place where you could work I want you to write it down on two places. 
I want you to write it down on this card that I'm passing around. And I want you to write it down on your lifeline. I'm just going to start giving out big things. The card I want you to bring up and place on the table during, as you come forward for communion. I'm really testing to see how far I can walk away with this microphone. So far, it's working out well. I need to go get more cards. It's a good problem. I'm afraid to walk too much closer to that speaker. I've learned the hard way. Um, and the other place I want you to write it on is your lifeline. The card you're putting on the communion table. Oh, you know what I forgot to hand out? I picked up pens. Anyone need a pen? Anybody? Um, so where was I? So the card, I think I've said this many times, but uh, you'll put it on the, the communion table. The lifeline is yours to take home, to put someplace where you can be reminded of what you wrote, where you need to work, um, what, you need, what you think you need, what God is calling you to do. So let's take a few minutes in prayerful reflection. Where is one place in your life that you can work to get closer to God, to work with God to get closer to God? Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God, you've created us, you've made us, you know us.
better than we know ourselves, you know us. You know those places in our lives that still need your healing touch, that still need your grace. Help us. Help us to name that place. Help us be honest with you and honest with ourselves. Because you because you are about our redemption. You are about loving us back into being the people you created us to be. It's who you've been throughout history. It's who you've been throughout our lives. You've spoken to us through scripture, through your word, and through your prophets. You've delivered us from slavery to sin and death. And you've made a covenant to be our God. You sent us your son, Jesus Christ, to teach us what it is to love you and to love each other. And on the cross showed us the depths of your love for us. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. Gave thanks to you. Broke the bread. Gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup. Again gave you thanks. Gave it to his disciples and said, Drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here. And on these gifts of bread and juice, make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. God, make this moment, make this sharing of the bread and the, and the cup, Make this be an embodiment of your grace in our lives. So that those places that we name, those places where we need your healing grace, can be healed. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty God, now and forever. Amen. And now with the confidence of